Is it champagne for breakfast now? Austerity's over. Am I too young to have a comb over? Ever since our last episode of Answer Me This, people have been talking of nothing else except for whose were the legs walking away in the closing credit sequence of the bill. I mean, it would be true to say that if we wanted to make this episode just feedback about who played the legs in the closing sequence of the bill, we could. Why not a pizza at McDonald's style podcast just about this sole topic? We could. We've been generalists for too long, Ollie. (laughs) I'm surprised that the leg bearers haven't got in touch yet. Because you remember when we had a question about Olympic skeleton, the next episode we heard from Lizzie Yarnold, two-time Olympic gold-winning British skeletonist. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, here are a few highlights. Let's go on a journey. <laughs> Let's walk slowly with the legs up the street. Yeah. Gemma from Cheshire said, I was convinced that I was told years ago that my auntie was the female legs. Right. I've double-checked and apparently she was filmed for it but so were other people. So she's not exactly sure if it was definitely her in the final edit. What? Uh, She may have been called Annette Paris at the time, if we're looking for a name for the legs. Wow. I mean, as established in the answer last episode, it was an iconic role, but um, one where no one saw your face and there was no notoriety baked into that. I mean, okay, you're going to be on ITV, 10 million people are going to see it, but you wouldn't guess 30 years later you'd still be being discussed. So I'm surprised that there was a screen testing process and numerous contenders. Even Auntie Annette couldn't recognise her own legs or someone else's legs. Yeah. And then Chloe says, when I was in school in the 90s, there was a persistent rumour that the daughter of one of the teachers was the female legs. The daughter of one of the teachers. Okay, that's tenuous. The teacher was Mrs Quinn, but I can't remember any more details because it was ages ago now. Anyway, it was probably bollocks in the same way that many rumours at school are. So it could have been Mrs Quinn's daughter because we don't have a name. Well, we don't know whether Mrs Quinn's daughter, of course, was Annette Paris. Very good point. Gemma, was your auntie the daughter of a teacher called Mrs Quinn? Because then we're corroborating. Did you have a rumour, by the way, about any of the teachers in your school that you can broadcast? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, a lot of the rumours were true that they were alcoholics or sleeping with uh, six formers. Same. Or having affairs with each other. Uh, The rumour at my school was that John Cleese's character in Clockwise had been based on my headmaster. But he's an uptight headmaster and you went to a very free and easy school. Yeah, but that sort of makes sense because it makes sense that like someone like John Cleese would send their kids to my school. I don't know if he did, but if he did, that he'd come into contact with that headmaster who was uh, atypical of the sort of hippie vibes in that he did uh, exhibit uptight tendencies. Oh. So I can see, you know, it makes sense, but I don't know that it's true. I feel like Clockwise is a film that it would be better not to revisit now. Totally agree. Like, it's one that I'm happy I saw when I was eight, and I think I was probably the right age, and it was the right year. Well, Anthony, whose family uh, were devoted bill watchers, says, I distinctly remember an interview with either the cast or the director at the time of the first series. They were asked about the closing credit scene, and the answer given was that the legs belonged to professional dancers. The directors or producers wanted the steps to fall on the beat of the music, and the dancers were the best way of getting the timing spot on. This also explains the exaggerated slow pace you referred to in the podcast. Yeah, speed at which no police officer has ever walked. I did some searching, but I can't find any corroborating evidence of this. Yeah, well, tell me about it. This is the problem. It is the one truly ungoogleable fact left in the world, Anthony. I did try last time. You think ungoogleable, but Google does seem to agree with listener Tom, who says, 
According to Graham Cole, the actor who played Tony Stamp on the show for 20 years, so he should know, everyone mm. on the cast tried to get the gig as the legs. <laughs> why? Well, again, if you didn't know it was going to be a big deal, why would that matter so much? Maybe you just want to have nice pins. I mean, remember the time that you and Martin competed to have the shapeliest <laughs> calves? It's true. Getting attention for your legs is thrilling. But in the end, says Tom, Paul, Paige Hansen and Karen England were the two extras who walked the famous cobbles. And that is on both of their IMDb listings. Okay. Yes, it is. But a couple of things on that. Mm Mm-hmm. First of all, the facts on IMDb, so-called, are user-submitted, aren't they? So it's not evidence enough, I would say, in and of itself that it's on IMDb, although obviously it's useful. But people would uh, dispute it, wouldn't they? Well, they would if it was on, for example, the page about the bill. But who's looking at the page for Paul Page Hanson, who no one's ever heard of? Loads of people, evidently, judging by who emailed in. (laughs) Well, exactly. That's the thing. So only people who believe this story that Paul Page Hanson and Karen England are the extras who played the legs in the closing sequence of the bill are going to be looking at their IMDb pages. So that's number one. The other thing that I'm just dubious about is if you look at their other credits. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Paul Page Hanson only has one other credit, which is Doctor Who. Now, I think if you're an extra and you bother listing your extra credits on IMDb, you'd have dozens. Why only two? I don't know how IMDb listings work, because some people you'd expect to have a profile don't, and other people do. Exactly. Exactly. So if you're an extra that has a profile, why would there only be two credits on it? If you've bothered to go to the effort of creating one. But the thing I think might solve this for us, though, Helen, is Karen England's other credit on IMDb is an appearance on GMTV on the 31st of August 2010. Walking slowly away? Uh, (laughs) uh, The role it says she's playing is herself, right? Hmm. Now, I don't know anything about Karen England because it doesn't say anything else on there. But unless she had some weird experience she was on there to talk about, like she'd seen Jesus appear in her cereal or whatever. In which case, she probably wouldn't have an IMDb listing for that. Exactly. Let's assume that if she's going on as herself, and the only other notable thing about her, apparently, is she played the female legs in the bill. Let's assume that's what she was talking about on the 31st of August 2010. So my plea now is if you work at ITV and you have access to the ITV archives... Can you see whether Karen England's appearance on the 31st of August 2010 was about being the legs in the bill? Because if it was, (laughs) then I think that's legit. Are you sure that you want to spunk your favour from someone who works at ITV on this? (laughs) Yeah, not the Saturday Night Chat Show, this. Very fair. Um, (laughs) Also, before anyone like Googles Karen England's GMTV to see if it's on YouTube, already done that. There is a lady called Karen England who was in a crossover classical music duo called the Opera Babes. <laughs> they were on GMTV in that era. Definitely not the same Karen England. According to that Karen England's Wikipedia, she was born in 1974, okay. which would make her legs only 10 years old in 1984, therefore too young to be the legs on the bill. They certainly don't look like child legs. That's not a 10-year-old's legs. Unless, you know, she had incredibly mature legs for a 10-year-old. And that's why all those years later, in August 2010, whilst promoting her crossover classical music duo, she was still talking about that. Unless both of the legs are child legs and it's kind of Bugsy Malone situation. (laughs) Maybe. I mean, the bill would have been a very different programme had that been the case. And a more entertaining one. Custard guns to uh, stop the crims. Hello, this is Adam and Emma in Liverpool. Say hello, Emma. Hello. We're in bed at the moment. 
and Emma has a question for you. Hi, Helen, Ollie and Martin, the sound guy. Just a random question. In an average day, how many meatballs do IKEA get through? Do you mean like one IKEA or the whole of IKEA? don't know. As I said, it was a random question. I really feel like uh, we were in bed there with them. Yeah, totally. Martin, how do you feel about being Martin the sound guy rather than the sound man? Uh, that's quite quite nice. A little more informal. Yeah. What did someone call him the other day, Helen, in our email inbox? We both laughed out loud hard. <laughs> Malcolm. Malcolm the sound that's... guy. <laughs> Malcolm. But it wasn't someone deliberately doing a funny. That's why it was funny. It was someone who clearly just thought your name was Malcolm. I think people have got me all wrong. It's the fact that they knew enough that you were Malcolm the sound man. You know, if it just said Malcolm, that would be less funny. You could pass for a Malcolm Martin. Oh, thanks. The world doesn't have that many Malcolms in it these days. No. Malcolm Kennedy, I suppose, is the famous Malcolm. Who's Malcolm Kennedy? Neighbours. Carl and Susan's son. Oh, right, right. And he peaked in the early 90s. Oh, wait, he's a fictional character then. Yeah, he's fictional Malcolm. Okay. I mean, everything in Neighbours peaked in the early 90s. <laughs> I don't think it's fair to pin it all on Malcolm. I I cannot contradict, except for the scene where um, Paul Robinson is thrown off a cliff. That was this century. Fine. Continue. Um, I'm going to take the question um, to be how many meatballs does Ikea get through in the world every day? Yes, and also presumably that they're serving in their cafes rather than they're selling from their freezers. Although that is a good tip, isn't it? If you If you have a freezer and you're in Ikea... Get the frozen meatballs, they're jolly nice. Because once you've got through the tills, there's then the opportunity to buy more shit. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. They've really thought this through. And I usually go for the Rivita wheel. Yes. I love a Rivita wheel. It isn't actually Rivita, is it? It's like stock broad or something, but it's basically <laughs> Rivita, yeah. You knew what I was talking about, didn't you? I did. So, okay, the number of meatballs that they sell on plates at the cafes... Yes. In all the yes. Ikeas in the world. I don't even know how many Ikeas there are in the world. Well, don't worry, Helen, because oh, I do. I'm so excited. Uh, so the annual figure that their press office tells the world is, wait for it, one billion meatballs a year. Whoa. That's a lot. I assume they're using the widespread American definition of 1,000 million. Yeah. So if that's the case, 1,000 million divided by 365 is roughly 2,740,000 meatballs a day. Hmm. Now, that sounded like a lot to me. Um, but I thought I should test the figure. So I thought, okay, how many IKEA stores are there around the world? The answer to that, Helen, would you care to guess? It's more than you think. Okay. I think. It's more than I thought. If it's more than I think, then I'm going to go for 5,800. <laughs> but if it's the amount, I think, 400. Yes, it's 403. Yes. Wow. When this article was written in 2017. Might be 410 now. Anyway, if you divide 2,740,000 meatballs by 403 IKEA stores around the world, that gives you 6,798 meatballs per store per day. Right. This is a fuck a lot of maths you've had to do for this. Now, if you take a portion size at IKEA to be 10 meatballs, I know some people go smaller, but let's say 10, then that's 679 people buying meatballs in each IKEA store per day. Wow. And that to me does sound plausible because they're massively popular stores. There's a lot of footfall and quite a limited menu. So I actually do believe that statistic. I can believe 679 people in each branch of IKEA choose meatballs each day. So yes, the answer is a roughly 2,740,000. Per day. Per day. I've been to IKEA, I'd say at least 10 times in my life, but I've actually never ordered the meatballs. What? I know, because they look like they look like the texture would be a bit wrong. The texture's very, very smooth. 
I do applaud the presence of jelly on their menu, though. You do not get enough of that in grown-up restaurants. You know, I absolutely agree with you, Ollie. For a while when I was in hospital, the only thing I could eat was jelly. And <laughs> a nice jelly would have been so welcome, whereas what I had was a jelly that smelt and tasted of chicken stock. I am not ready for that jelly. No, I will never be ready. Here's a question from Graham, who says, I saw the Pope-mobile driving down the M40 somewhere near Bicester. Oh, lucky you. The Pope wasn't inside. It's a pretty strange car. Apart from whatever the Pope-mobile was doing driving down the M40, actually driving, not on a truck, it was keeping up with traffic. So, Helen, answer me this. How fast does the Pope-mobile go? Does it have a souped-up engine and good handling in case there's a chase? It certainly does. The Pope-mobile's usual road speed is 6 to 10 miles per hour, which would be very Mm. unpopular on the M40. People (laughs) would be honking. But it can go up to 160 miles per hour. What? Fuck off. That is a speed. And it's so unergonomic. It it looks like... I mean, there are lots of different Pope-mobiles, actually, but what most of them have in common is they look a bit like that car Homer Simpson designed. (laughs) (laughs) I suppose he's a terrorist target, the Pope, isn't he? You can understand that the car would be competitive that it could go at 100 miles an hour. Why 160? I wonder whether they did that because in 1981, someone tried to assassinate the Pope. Or possibly, I wonder if it's... Because it's not just one brand that supplies the Pope mobile, is it? It's not like the the British London cab that's always the same company that makes it. Like Everyone's had a go at it, right? Yeah, yeah, everyone. I mean, even Leyland Trucks did a Pope mobile. (laughs) It was a truck with the Pope on top. I'm wondering if maybe, therefore, you know, if you get to do a Pope-mobile, it's almost like doing a concept car, isn't it? So if you're Mercedes-Benz, I mean, okay, it doesn't look like a Mercedes, but if the press cover the Pope-mobile when, they, when he brings his new Pope-mobile out, I suppose you want the quote to be able to say, you know, Mercedes have put their cutting-edge engine in it, which can go up to 160 miles per hour. So I wonder if that's the reason. It's a press story, isn't it, if you get to yeah. design a car for the Pope? Well, I saw quite a lot of complaints that in the Pope's August visit to Ireland, he went by too fast. So maybe he was like, go on, floor it. Let's see what this baby can do. (laughs) If you've got a question, email your question. To answer me at this podcast, googlemail.com. Answer me at this podcast, Here's a question from Nancy, who says, Please help save me from a problem of my own making. I have lived a lie for the majority of my adult life, and now I am paying the price. Strong opener. The lie I told was that I'm allergic to dogs. Okay. I'm not allergic to dogs, or hamsters, or any of the furry things people have tried to force on me over the years. I just don't like animals. Don't get me wrong, I don't want to hurt them. I don't go around kicking dogs or dropping cats in bins. I just don't like animals. Our mutual friend Alex is a bit like that, isn't he? Yeah, he's softened a bit. Has he? Okay. But he doesn't have a pet, right? No, he doesn't like them, but he no longer says things like, my dream job would be kicking dogs to death. But I think he probably still thinks it, a bit. Yeah, probably. I understand his point of view, like he said to me, and he's only told me like at parties when he's drunk and I feel like I'm getting the whole truth. There's been an acknowledgement that this is an outrageous thing to say. But he's told me that essentially, like, he sees people's pet dogs and cats and just thinks of poo and dirt and unhygienic things. Yeah. And why is everyone letting, you know, another species into their house and letting them crap there and stuff? Wasted emotions. Yeah. But even he, I don't think, uh, hates the whole of the animal kingdom. 
like uh, Nancy is saying that she does. I think he would just prefer not to engage with pets. I get the sense he might like looking at an attractive vista, say, oh, look, there's a peacock. Yeah, fine. Without thinking, and I want to kill it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's got, got to that point. Well done him. Yeah, whereas Nancy doesn't even appear to have that no. aesthetic pleasure. Nancy says the problem with pet owners is they don't believe this. They think their pet is special, an exception to the rule, the rule being that Nancy doesn't like animals. I noticed this even more as my sister is terrified of dogs. She'd cross over a road to avoid passing one on a lead. Yeah, join the club. Yet when we have visited friends and family with dogs, we've been kindly asked on the doorstep, do you mind dogs? To which my sister has never been shy in saying, no, I'm terrified of dogs. The truth. To which the dog owner then replies, oh, but you'll love our dog. And then Ugh. opens the door to let the dog jump all around us and get to know us. I sympathise with where she's coming from because I'm scared of dogs. Um, and I have had this thing happen, but I have acknowledged that it appears in dog psychology to calm the dog down. If you pretend and you say, oh, hello, and let it sniff you and jump on you, it's difficult, but then they do leave you alone a bit more. They're not barking at you the whole time, so there is method in the madness, isn't there? I don't know. When my family used to have dogs, we used to try and hold them back from people that didn't like them. But that's the point. How long did you have to hold them back for? Like, if you end up holding them back for hours, it's easier just to let them slobber on them once. Usually just the first couple of minutes, and then they're not that bothered anymore. And then they just go back to sleep. Many a time, says Nancy, I've had to watch the colour drain from my sister's face as we spend the rest of the visit with her so on edge that she could hardly drink a cup of tea. Why is this acceptable? If someone said, what's your worst fear? Oh, spiders, come round to my house and let some crawl on you. It would be seen as the height of rudeness. (laughs) Anyway, says Nancy, years ago I was noticing this reply again and again. So... To be polite, I decided to answer the question, do you like dogs, with, oh, I love them, but I'm terribly allergic. Bam, done. Dogs are put outside or in the next room. That's good. I'm happy. My sister's happy. The dog owners are happy that their dogs are universally loved. Okay, so what's the problem? It seems to me that this lie has been successful in separating dogs from you. Except not. A few months ago, my family, myself, my husband and our two kids, expatriated. We moved to Uh Kuala Lumpur at around the same time as a friend got a new dog. I message her frequently and stay in touch, but have to endure four messages a day of her dog being a dog. If she thinks he looks cute, which is all the time, she sends a picture, she captions him with silly comments, I've got videos of it watching the TV and her giggling like a madwoman. I get sent BuzzFeed lists of 27 dogs who'll brighten your day. Every time I pick up my phone, there seems to be a dog-related message on it to which I have to reply, oh, cute. But man, I hate that dog. And she loves it so much. You know how you can tell she's telling the truth, Helen? How? It's because she calls the dog it. Even though she said she knows the gender. Like she said it's a him, but now twice has referred to it as it. She probably knows the dog's name and everything. Yeah, exactly. But doesn't want to pander to it. Doesn't want to anthropomorphise. I try to consider the dog like her child. I don't know how to tell her I don't want these photos. I'd be gutted if someone said that about my kids. They don't, of course, as I don't send people photos of my kids unless something really notable happened, like one of them got a Nobel Prize or had a hilarious fall that I managed to capture on video. <laughs> I, bar. I send a weekly message to grandparents of pictures of the kids, and then if a friend asks how the kids are, I'll send a photo of them smiling as proof of life. <laughs> wow. Sounds like a kidnapping. Proof of life. I have more photos of her dog than my kids on my phone, And the trouble is, she thinks I like them as I'm stuck in this polite, smiling prison. So, Ollie, answer me this. 
How do I tell her to rein it in? Or am I forced to endure a daily onslaught of dog-related messages, photos and links? By the way, since I started writing you this email, I've had two photos. One of the dog looking at his empty bowl and a dog food tin. Another of him eating the dog food. I got eight last night from a walk they took together. Whoa. All right, what is the deal with your friend? Yeah. It seems like there's something lacking in her life, right? It's too much. And I think for that reason, you have to tread particularly delicately, actually. However, I see the issue, and it's not the same as if you were on social media and it wasn't directed at you, in which case you could just mute them. I mean, I've done that plenty of times on Facebook, um, especially when people post too many pictures of their kids. I like kids. I just, you know, you know when people just forget that you don't, for example want to be scrolling through your newsfeed on an iPad and see a massive picture of their son's chicken pox. (laughs) (laughs) Don't. You know, too much. Um, But you can mute those people. But the difficulty here is she is sending them directly to you and it's because of the misconception that you have caused from your lie that you like dogs but you're just allergic to them so camera phone seems the perfect medium to send you dog pictures. So it is tricky but... I would say very firmly, don't tell her you hate the dog like you just told us. That is not the thing to say. It's a thing to say. But what you could say that you also told us was that fact that there are more photos of her dog than your kids on your phone. That's quite a shocking statistic, isn't it? I wonder if if you could maybe package that as like a lol. You know, use an, an amused emoji of some description, whatever the kids <laughs> do these days. and And send a message that's like, amused emoji... I just realised I have more photos of your dog than my kids. OMG, ha ha ha. And then actually say, it's getting too much for my phone. Would you mind just sending me the best one each week? I'm getting overwhelmed. No. What do you mean no? That was a perfectly reasonable answer. It's just different to yours. Not no. I don't think it's going to help, to be honest, because you're still letting this person think you give a shit and you don't. One a week. One a week. Put up with one a week. The thing is, if she's sending like eight just in one evening, I think she'll think that one a week is like several a day still. She'll be like, God, it feels like a week since I sent Nancy a picture and it'll be actually two hours. Okay. I still think my solution deserved a bit of like, well, that could work, but I've got a better idea rather than a hard no. All right. I've got a different lie that Nancy could try. Fine. It's kind of assuming your sister's persona of someone who's very afraid of dogs. And Mm. I think going, I'm so sorry, friend. It is kind of difficult to say to you because it's so sweet of you to send me pictures of your dog and, you know, from so far away, I'm always glad to hear from you, but I'm actually really afraid of dogs and each picture is kind of triggering for me. Would you mind not sending me the pictures of the dogs? Fine, but that is, like I say, this person potentially quite delicate. You're telling them that you've been too polite to say it until now, but on a nightly basis, eight times a night, you've been terrified by them sending you something they sent you with good intention. Yeah, so they're not going to send you any more fucking dog memes, are they? Sure, but they might not take that news very well. They might feel terrible about that. I think what Nancy could do is invite different information from this friend's life and say, you know, how's work? How are your hobbies? What else is happening? And at least try to sort of cultivate yeah, these Yeah, work's other... great. He came to work with me today. Here's a picture. Ah. Yeah, my hobby now is buying things for the dog. Or you've got to just block this friend. Is this like a relatively new acquisition of a dog? Is it? Do you think she'll get it out of her system and it'll be a little calmer, given a few weeks or a few months? Or a few years. She says in the email a few months ago, they mm. moved to Kuala Lumpur about the same time as a friend got a new dog. So is that early in a dog relationship, a few months? It's quite early. Especially if it's a puppy, then people are going to take yes. loads of photos because each week the puppy will look a bit different. And for the first time, the puppy is doing a cute, funny thing. But 
in two years time but then that's still a lot of dog photos you've got between now and two years hence but the thing i find unacceptable is the stuff that is material about just other dogs so the buzzfeed lists of dogs mm. i get why people send you pictures of things in their life that you're not super interested in but it's like yeah. the difference between a friend sending me a picture of their baby where i'm like oh yeah. cool it's nice to you know just keep in touch with the, my friend and their family and just pictures of babies because also what they're doing by sending you the picture of their baby is they're saying you're important to me as a relationship yeah. so i want you to share in this thing that means something to me yeah. But the mo- the motivation's still the same with the pictures of her dog, right? So you agree that, but you just think it's when it's... Because she's mistakenly thought that she likes dogs, it's when it's branching off into virals. Yeah, it's like when you've got a friend who likes cats, as you do, Ollie, you like your cat. But yeah. I haven't started sending you everything cat-related, so it's not like every birthday you get, like, oven mitts with cats on, tea towels with cats on, china with cats on. I'm pretty narrowly focused on my cat. I have one other suggestion for Nancy. Uh-huh. One way to ease communications from somebody is just not to respond that much. Don't respond to each one. Don't even respond daily. Hmm. Maybe a couple of times a week. And then they will send less. Yes. Because she might have a mail list... It might not just be you that's getting the dog. Oh, very unlikely just to be you. So she's probably thinking you're in the Hardcore Dog Appreciation Society. Whereas if you don't reply that often... Like, so we have, um, to try and avoid the issue of putting loads of pictures of our son all over Facebook and Instagram and stuff, we have a special WhatsApp group for our family, for people who might be interested in him. Mm-hmm. But the aunties are in there as well as the grandparents. Yeah. And I was like, definitely the auntie should be in there. But I'm sure if I was the auntie, I'd be happy with, you know, once fortnightly content. Whereas the grandparents are obviously happy with maybe not daily, but definitely bi-daily content. So it's trying to find that happy medium. And I've sometimes thought, do we do like a hardcore grandparents group as well for the daily updates? Right. Part of my growing to realise that is the amount that the aunties respond is obviously less than the grandparents. So I think that's true what you said. Like you, you get a sense of it. One thing that Nancy's email makes me think of is that having an allergy can be convenient. Uh, About three years ago, I developed a booze allergy, a a real one, but it means that all the people who were trying to force feed me booze before when I was just indifferent to it and didn't want to drink it will now leave me alone rather than being like, oh, go on, go on, because so many people will not accept that you don't want to drink alcohol and you just don't want to. Whereas allergies they respect yes so i think nancy did a decent lie you've actually just made me think for the first time ever about whether a good friend of mine Cellini, who has a cat allergy is telling the truth oh that has never occurred to me before like i just trust people when they tell me about their illnesses it would feel like a terrible thing not to believe someone yeah. but nancy you've just proven evidence maybe Cellini hates my cat and this is the way that she's managed to keep herself in a separate room for all these years and actually, I would I would be personally slighted if, if that were the case. If she came out to me with that lie. You must not say that this is a lie, Nancy. All of the dog and cat allergists will be unmasked. Well, you're casting doubt, aren't you, on people with legitimate allergies? Yeah, that's the thing. So you're making life tough for them. Yeah, it does make a lot of people's lives really shit. And you've just co-opted it for your own needs. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> We, I should update you, actually, because I said on the show uh, three or four months ago, I think, that we were thinking of getting a new cat to live with Coco. You and were, I was yeah. dubious about it, yeah. Um, so the latest on that is that we've taken the plunge, as in we've gone to a rehoming centre to go and look at cats. Mm-hmm. And I've learned a lot about bringing a second cat in with an older female cat. It's a generalisation, but apparently true. 
older female cats don't like younger female cats. It's an all about Eve situation. Whereas I've thought, we've done really well with this particular type of female moggy cat. Let's just get another one like that, you know, that's 10 years younger. That's a big no-no, apparently. Right. What you want is a younger male that she then mothers rather than, you know, tries to see as a rival. And then we've been told... Uh, if you've got kitten, if you've got a male kitten, don't have a male kitten with an older female ha- cat because he'll drive her nuts. Get two male kittens. So we're now in the market for suddenly three cats, which is a bit insane. Right. Um, because as we've discussed before, I believe firmly that the line at which you become a crazy cat person is four cats. So I'm happy to get two male kittens and have our older female cat, but I'm just worried, like, what if in the future... A friend of ours is like, we're going to put this cat down unless you can look after it. And I'm in the situation where we have the fourth cat. Or, you know, a cat walks into our garden one day as a stranger and then ends up living here. We'll have four cats and I'll be certifiably mad. Well, of course, the alternative is just not to get extra cats. Don't be ridiculous. <laughs> That's no alternative at all. What kind of life is that? Well, I think um, it's now time to take a little break with this month's intermission. And today, with the festive season approaching like Santa on his reindeer-drawn sleigh. Mm. Let's hear a little snippet of the Answer Me This Christmas album. Yes. One hour of festive fun about different Christmassy things and Kwanzas in there and all of it is stuff that has not been on the podcast. That's right. It was recorded in 2013, but it is... Uh, was it? Evergreen like Will Young. 2013? It was, yeah. No. 2013. Shit, the bed... I thought it was like two years old. Uh, and uh, the Christmas album, as well as all our other albums and our first 200 episodes and our best of collections are all available on our spin-off website, answermethisstore.com. The only thing I can think of about a plum pudding that I like is that it was once a, a model of the atom. What? That's how people understood the atom. They thought it was like a big load of... like The raisins were like... Um, uh, like nuclei and then the rest of the pudding was like electrons which is ironic really for something that is has such incredible mass as a Christmas pudding <laughs> yeah it's very den- high density and if you split it where's the comparison there well I think you'd have to split an individual raisin to think about nuclear fission if that's what you're alluding to I think you're overthinking puddings and that's all there is to it oh huh? oh yeah let us hear a question now in your voices and you could phone the following number. 0208123 Or you could Skype answer me this. The most reliable way to send us a question in your voice is to record a voice memo on your phone and email it to us at the usual address. Hey Helen, Ollie, Martin, it's Nate. I'm Kate, currently in Disneyland Paris celebrating our wedding anniversary and we just spent the last 90 minutes queuing up to meet Ariel, the Little Mermaid, albeit in her human form, and I was under strict instructions from Kate not to ask her my most burning mermaid-related question, which is, when she was a mermaid, did she lay eggs or did she produce some kind of spawn? Um, I was too busy looking amazed while we were in there, so um, I forgot to ask her. I even looked at what the French was. Um, So can you answer us that? Does the little mermaid lay eggs or spawn or produce in some other way? The bottom half of the mermaid, if you look at the illustrations, appear to be related most closely to pelagic fish. Deep sea fish. Which, if that's the case, I mean, you're only going on how they look, but that appears to be the case, would mean they do have a slit about halfway down their fin from where they release eggs. Okay. What's the definition, really? Spawn be eggs? I would say species of fish lay so many eggs that they are effectively spawn. 
I mean, I think in the case of pelagic fish, um, you do get groups of eggs. And that can be evidenced by the fact that if you look at uh, Ariel's sisters in the movie, they're all quite close in age to her. So that would suggest, wouldn't it, that her mother laid lots of eggs and they all hatched at roughly the same time. Hmm. And presumably they were breastfed, which is unusual for a fish. But why would they have tits otherwise? Uh, Well, you know why they've got tits. It's so that people can leer at the tits. Here's another Disney-related question from Juliana from Tampa, Florida, who says, My brother and sister got me a surprise gift for my birthday to go to Epcot. Ollie, answer me this. What is the best way to avoid standing in lines? Should I bring my own chair to sit in the lines? What's the most comfortable way to exist while in a line? So it's basically a lot of queuing, is it, when you go to Epcot? Yeah, well, it's a lot of queuing when you go to any theme park. And I struggle to believe, Juliana, that you don't really know an answer to this question because not only are you from Florida, home of theme parks, but specifically you're from Tampa. I've just been there on holiday. There is frankly no fucking way you could live in Tampa and not have at least once done the thing that everyone does within 48 hours of being in Tampa, which is go to Bush Gardens, which is a massive theme park. So that's the same deal as Disney. Is the theme Jeb Bush? <laughs> it's named after Anheuser Busch, isn't it? The beer manufacturer. That's right. Yes, it's the same group that own Budweiser and SeaWorld. So they're a massive brewery. So is it like the Duff Beer theme park? Yeah, it is in effect. But you know, the deal's the same. There are some rides you have to queue. Um, so I can't believe you haven't worked out your own techniques in the past, Juliana. Anyway, mm. I would say if you're bothered about sitting in line or standing in line, however you want to do it, Juliana, um, do some research and pick in advance the rides that have more inbuilt line-based entertainment. Uh Uh-huh. Like Mission Space, I can't remember now because it's been a while since I've been to Epcot, but I reckon Mission Space probably has like screens telling you how to train as an astronaut because that's the theme of the ride so that when you get on the ride, you've been sort of briefed. Whereas O Canada, that's probably not that much fun in the queue unless you enjoy the simulation of being in a queue in Canada. That's the real ride. (laughs) Well, my general uh, Epcot tips uh, would be the fireworks. Like, stay for the fireworks. They're the best in the world. The firework display in the evening is incredible. Everything else is just really weird unless you're interested in shopping or seeing what white people in the 60s thought the 90s might be like. (laughs) I'm kind of curious about that, having lived through the 90s. Yeah, they got it wrong. genuine tip here now Uh, if you do want not to spend too long in queues they have a thing at disney called fast pass that's free you just need to go you need to walk up to a certain place where you can get your passes and it gives you a time slot so then you don't have to wait more than 20 minutes for the big rides okay that's a really good tip so you can get that for epcot yeah yeah, for the big rides so for whatever their three big attractions are for those you can get a slot so you shouldn't theoretically ever be waiting more than an hour for anything um, and only 20 minutes for the big ones but you can pay more to get to the front but for free, you can get these fast passes. So that's pretty good. Um, th- when we were in um, Florida, actually, we went to Legoland. They have a cool thing if you have toddlers with you, which is uh, the adults stand in line, but the toddlers go and play with Lego until you get to the front and oh, then they join you again. Jealous. Which is really good, yeah. Now, I do wonder why theme parks, when they put so much effort into theming other things, haven't put more effort into the queuing experience and why not make it more like a slow ride? So part of the pain is just, standing for like an hour what about making an almost very slow roller coaster so everyone sits down when you arrive in the queue and it gently snakes you to the front of the queue <laughs> kind of like a conveyor belt but for humans how about well, that well i mean 
effectively what you're describing is what happens in a lot of the Florida theme parks. I mean, the, the design of the Haunted Mansion in the Disney parks, for example, which goes back some 50 years now, um, you do still have to queue to get to the cool bit, but the cool bit starts before the ride. So there's an elevator that takes you down to the ride and the elevator in itself uh, is this cool effect where the pictures appear to stretch before your eyes and there's this sort of Vincent Price style voiceover and stuff. And as you're walking up to the queue, you're walking past gravestones that have got punny names on and stuff like that. So I think, you know, that there is a tradition of doing that, but it is true sometimes you are basically just standing in line and there's not much you can do to entertain yourself. But I think that's important. I think it's important to be a bit bored, talk to your family. I mean, I, Disney brought out an app a while ago, so you're supposed to look at the app it's got like some sort of AR thing going on, but I just think that's a cop out. Like, talk to your friends. Okay, so it's not a kind of headphone situation like you would if you're queuing at an airport. I should say actually, I, so the most recent uh, visitor attraction that I've been to was just today, so it's fresh in my memory. Wow, Paradise Wildlife Park in Broxbourne. I should say, if, if you're in my situation, you have a toddler, it's fucking great because they've gamified everything, all the animals. Is that legal? Yeah, there's a tunnel that takes you under the meerkat enclosure, for example. But the most hilarious thing about it, and I actually feel almost guilty flagging this up because I don't want them to get in trouble and I don't want to ruin it because it is genuinely quite good. But they have a new dinosaur attraction there, which is like legit good. Like the sculptures of the dinosaurs, they're proper animatronics. They're as good as the ones at Universal Studios. It's really cool. But they are sailing very close to the wind, Helen, with the Jurassic Park references. Oh, really? They clearly do not have the permission to (laughs) turn it into Jurassic Park world. And they've obviously just thought, oh, fuck it, let's do it anyway. Like, what's copyrighted? It's just dinosaurs. They didn't invent dinosaurs. They just invented second-gen dinosaurs. The font? Like it says, you know, Paradise Dinosaur World in the Jurassic Park font. I see. They've got the Jeep. They've got these, like, destroyed Jeeps everywhere that have just been trampled on by a Spielberg dinosaur. They've got the entrance to the park is a rip-off of Jurassic Park, the big wooden doors. And then, to add insult to injury, when you're on the dinosaur train, which, by the way, is well worth the extra two quid, uh, they play the theme from Jurassic Park (laughs) as you return to the station. Uh, And, I mean, I guess that's a commercially available track. I suppose they have a PRS license and they can play the Jurassic Park theme, but that's pretty... The context of it being on a dinosaur theme park ride... Like I say, a bit close to the wind, I felt. And yet, they continue to get away with it in plain sight. suppose the theory is that Universal aren't going to sue Hertfordshire Zoological Society. And I, I suppose that's sound. But it's still a big financial risk, isn't it? I don't know if you've ever helped your mum build a website. It is the kind of torment from which there is no respite. If she asks, what's a widget again? I will kill her with a rusty spike. Or a brick or a spade or a chainsaw. But Squarespace is so easy, even your mum can use it. She can drag and drop and cut and paste, that's all there is to it. So Helen, put that spike down, I beg you, for Christ's sake, don't do it! Sorry, mum. Thanks to Squarespace for sponsoring this episode of Answer Me This. Uh, Squarespace are the company that make it easy for you to design a website. And they began in a dorm room in 2006. Really? uh, About six months before we did. Uh, Oh, wow. They now have more than 800 employees. (laughs) And we're still doing this. (laughs) If you're busy in your dorm room inventing something, why not build a website about that something using Squarespace? They already designed these award-winning templates and -and drag-and-drop tools to make it very easy for you to do your something. 
whatever that is. And whether that's showcasing your skills as a professional photographer or simply hosting a blog for your fascinating collection of insights into the world, they have a template that will make you look better than you actually are. And isn't that what we all want? (laughs) (laughs) If only they had that for life. (laughs) There's a two-week free trial, uh, so uh, get on down to squarespace.com slash answer and try that out. And then to get 10% off your purchase of a website or domain, remember to use our code ANSWER. Here's a question from Will, who says, Whenever I hear someone doing an impression of someone from New York, they always seem to do so by bellowing the phrase, I'm walking here, in an aggrieved tone. (laughs) I've never been to New York, or to the US for that matter, to confirm if this is accurate. So Helen, answer me this. Do New Yorkers actually say, I'm walking here? And if so, why and in what context? Yeah, I was just in New York the other day and I'm not saying I I met every New Yorker, but I did not hear anybody say, I'm walking here. It's a specific film reference, I think. Um, It's from Midnight Cowboy Ah. uh, with John Voight and Dustin Hoffman. And uh, Dustin Hoffman is walking and talking to John Voight. I'm walking and talking here. Yeah, he's he's Aaron Sorkin and... And he uh, crosses over a side road and a car comes out and uh, almost hits him and he says, I'm walking here, slams his hand down on the car bonnet and carries on walking. And, and I think the reason that's caught on as a very New York thing is there is this perception that New Yorkers are like really unfriendly, like really driven and focused on getting to where they're going. And that like kind of sums up like that New Yorkiness, I guess. Yeah. And also that pedestrians might take precedence over car drivers for once in an American city. Yeah, but there is also there is an attitude in New York of like brashness, isn't there? It's a stereotype, but there's a sense that especially people on their way to work have a confidence in what they're doing. And if you get the cab when they wanted the cab, you know, there's going to be an exchange. Again, I get that from films and television far more than I get it from Axel New York. I've got it from Axel New York. I've got it from Axel New York. I remember being in New York and just hearing everyone swearing at each other. And that shocked me. I mean, this is going back to like late 90s. In London, you didn't hear people swearing then. And I remember going to New York and just hearing everyone going, fuck you, when I got in the road. And I do remember thinking that it was a brasher place. I don't think I even lived in London when I first went to New York and I didn't find it that aggressive. I think they kind of like that reputation of being brisk and brusque. Well, I think there's been a conflation of New York and London in the last 20 years. I think they do feel, whenever I go between the two cities, I feel like they're more similar than they used to be. Yeah, It's partly like globalisation and they've got the same shops, literally, but it's also just the personality. London has become more aggressive and more high-flying and New York's chilled out a bit. I do feel that. Do you also think that um, this is a British thing, doing the impression of the New Yorkers, and there aren't that many phrases that people think they can do in an American accent. So they take this very exaggerated accent and because this is a familiar phrase, they can form the uh, appropriate shapes with their mouths. Yes. But actually emulating a more naturalistic New York accent would be beyond most people's capabilities in Britain. I don't know why people would find it so hard. Is it like the Jerky Boys? Is the Jerky Boys a kind of parody of the Jersey Boys? Do you remember the Jerky Boys? It was like a... No, no neither of us remember the Jerky it's, Boys. It's a dried meat-based uh. musical. Here's a question from Ian from Watford. He says, My family were just ordering an Indian takeaway and were discussing the hotness of chilies. Ollie, answer me this. Why are chilies hot? Aren't they a fruit? And isn't the point of fruit to be eaten so the seeds are spread in feces? If so, wouldn't being hot be a bad move and discourage animals from eating them? I'll just point out to Ian that the hotness of chilies really does help the spreading of feces. 
<laughs> like that's presumably the reason, right? Like animals get like, oh, this is tasty, and then they get like horrible diarrhea and and shit all over their friends' bathrooms. I'm just extrapolating a hypothetical here. It isn't, uh, but I see the logic. Okay, it is in fact an evolutionary masterstroke that Ian is correctly alluding to that animals, apart from humans in curries, are discouraged from eating chilies. Um, and that's because specifically mammals are discouraged because mammals have the effect that we as mammals identify with a sense of simulating the areas of the skin and tongue that normally sense heat and pain, mm-hmm. which makes oh. us think, oh God, what's going on here? So which ha- animals um, aren't affected by that? That would be the birds. Ah. Birds love a bit of spice. And they already shit liquids. <laughs> no difference. <laughs> yes, <exactly. laughs> I mean, I don't know if they love it, but they certainly tolerate it and aren't bothered. So they eat the fruit and disperse the seeds far and wide in their bum poos, and mammals don't. So it's a chemical called capsaicin, isn't it? The um, active ingredient in chilies. I'm so pleased you said it, because I've never heard it pronounced before. I, it's one of those words I'd be frightened to say. I'd have really seen it written down, but... Um, like posthumous, until we did posthumous. Posthumous. And, I was and, never sure. Oh, and monarchy, which I pronounced monarch because I'd never heard it out loud. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Monarchy. How do you say capsaicin? Capsaicin. Capsaicin. Oh, capsaicin. 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 Yeah. That wasn't far See, off. I was right to be worried about saying that. Capsaicin. Capsaicin. Well, now I know. Capsa- have you got to put on an automaton sort of American accent when you do it? Capsaicin. Birds do have taste buds, but their sense of taste is less well-developed than in mammals. Well, I'm not surprised. They eat seeds. I love seeds. Do you, though? I mean, yeah. I, I like I like putting seeds on a salad because the, the crunch is a surprise, but I wouldn't eat seeds for a meal. I mean, not a full meal, but then you're much bigger than sure. a bird, so you need more right, things but, to bulk it out. Mm, no, I'd still, you know, if I was bird size, I'd still rather have a crumb of what I'm eating for lunch than a seed. Right. You know, like, I'd rather have a bit of bagel and a bit of sesame seeds than just five sesame seeds. But you will agree that seeds on a bagel are better than no seeds on a bagel. I'm not crazy, Helen. Of course I'd agree that. Okay. (laughs) I remember when we first started working together on um, a college publication, and I used to bring breakfast to your room, and often it would be, say, bread rolls with seeds on, and you're like, oh, someone likes seeds. (laughs) I felt very seed-shamed. Wow, that was my first piece of observational comedy about you. Jeez. And it didn't warn me off. <laughs> Someone likes seeds. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Answer Me This. Please do send your questions for next month's episode, which will be out on the first Thursday of December. Our contact details are on our website. Answermethispodcast.com And it being December, obviously, not that we're wishing to nudge you in any particular direction, but it's nice to feel festive that time of year. If you have a Christmas question, you know, it can either be about the origins of something festive or it could be, I hate my family, what am I going to do? Now's the time to ask that question. Don't do the thing that people always do, wait till Christmas Day and then come up with a question about Christmas that we actually don't want to answer for another 12 months because we forget about them. Send it now. You know, no one wants stuff to listen to questions about Christmas in January. No, worst worst time, isn't Ugh, it? Worst hangover. But people are always interested by the other content we make online. Helen, why don't you remind our audience about your excellent podcast, The Illusionist? I make the excellent podcast, The Illusionist, <laughs> which is an entertainment show about language. And we're also on live tour at the moment. There are still dates to go in the US and Canada in the first half of November of the year. 2018 and those are listed at theillusionist.org slash events and ollie the modern man is back is it not new season it is the modern man is my weekly podcast about emerging trends music recommendations sex advice and amazing life stories don't worry 
I talk to people with the amazing life stories. I do not supply the sex advice personally. <laughs> there are 80 episodes now for you to binge on. I have interviewed everyone from would-be terrorists to bank robbers to professional declutterers. And the new series kicks off with a very frank interview. It's not a barrel of laughs. It's a man who suffered from anorexia and an incurable brain tumour. But what wow. is interesting, and I know he's announced me this, listeners, so <laughs> he's listening right now. Uh, he says his life is better now than when he was a junior doctor. <laughs> so that says a lot about what it's like training to be a junior doctor. Um, you can hear that story at modernmanwith2ends.co.uk. And Martin. Oh, you could listen to my podcast Song by Song, uh, where we talk about every Tom White song in chronological order, and we talk about uh, other kinds of music. Um, so it's not just Tom White's. Uh, and you can hear that at songbysongpodcast.com. And remember, you can buy our first 200 episodes at answermethisstore.com. Uh, they only cost 79 pence each, which is cracking value, but it is November, Black Friday is around the corner, Ooh. so, you know, you may want to check out the site on that day, nudgy nudgy winky winky. And there will also be a sample of one of those episodes in your feeds halfway through the month in our retro Answer Me This. But you need to subscribe to the show to do that, so you do. find us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen. Yeah, you know the places to get a podcast, you're listening to one right now. You're no fool. And... Please rejoin us next month for the next all new Answer Me This. Bye! Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.